You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode number 246 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Welcome to the podcast. As promised, with this show we're going to start taking a look back at what happened during the second year of the war. We did this when we finished up with 1861, and we thought it would be a good idea to do it again now that we're done with 1862 and about to move on into 1863. One reason we thought it would be a good idea is because we spent so long covering 1862 that it's easy to forget all the stuff we covered. I mean, we're up to episode number 246 now, and our two 1861 year-in-review shows were episodes number 85 and 86. And in real time, those shows were at the end of August and the beginning of September 2014. And right now, it's August 2018. So, yeah, we basically spent four years of real time and about 160 episodes to get through 1862. Wow. Wow, indeed. And during those four years of real time, we've moved twice, I've had three surgeries, Tracy hasn't had any surgeries, but has come down with countless colds slash sore throats. We both changed jobs. And did I mention that we've moved twice? But we're still plugging away at the podcast. Yep. Uh, although, as we said, have said before, we didn't quite know what all we were getting ourselves into when we started this project. Uh, but here we are, getting close to six years on, And one episode at a time, we're slowly but surely still working our way through the Civil War. So anyway, here we are on the podcast at the end of 1862 and about to jump into 1863. But if we look back a year, as you guys might recall, there appeared to be a military stalemate as the winter of 1861-62 had settled upon a nation at war with itself. From Virginia, through Kentucky, out to Missouri, soldiers huddled in tents or makeshift huts of winter camp. It was as if the war had been paused because of the inclement weather. And if the armies were to move in the cold weather, it would take generals with initiative to move them. Just such a general was on the move in Virginia. On New Year's Day, Confederate General Thomas Jonathan Jackson led his command north from Winchester in the Shenandoah Valley toward the Potomac River. Stonewall had decided to try and cut the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad and destroy the dams along the Chesapeake and Ohio Canal. There was much grumbling among officers and men at being ordered to undertake such an operation in the cold and bad weather, but Jackson was determined to complete the mission. Well, the efforts to wreck the dams failed, 
and Stonewall directed his columns west toward Romney, Virginia, pushing the troops through ice and snow. The Federal garrison in Romney fled, and Jackson's regiments occupied the village on January 10th. The operation really achieved little of significance, except to place hundreds of sick Confederate soldiers in hospitals. After this, some questioned Stonewall's sanity, but few could doubt his iron will. Meanwhile, in Washington, President Abraham Lincoln is still exceedingly distressed over the continuing inactivity of McClellan's Army of the Potomac. Lincoln writes a three-sentence note to Secretary of War Simon Cameron on a letter he has just received from a Union general commanding forces out in the war's Western theater. Lincoln tells Cameron, quote, The within is a copy of a letter just received from General Halleck. It is exceedingly discouraging. As everywhere else, nothing can be done. Lincoln, however, is planning to do something about Cameron. For some time, he has been receiving complaints of mismanagement and corruption in the War Department, and the President's own estimation of Cameron's effectiveness is such that Lincoln has met with Secretary of State Seward to discuss candidates to replace Cameron. And on January 15th, Simon Cameron is gently removed from the cabinet, leaving to become U.S. Ambassador to Russia, and the Senate confirms Edwin Stanton as the new Secretary of War. A formidable lawyer whose initial impressions of Lincoln are far from favorable, Stanton will prove to be exceptionally energetic and efficient in the challenging post. There's action in Kentucky where for weeks Lincoln had been urging a movement down into strongly Unionist East Tennessee, but the department commander Don Carlos Buell had stalled. Finally, though, in mid-January, Buell ordered Brigadier General George Thomas to advance. On January 19th, at Logan's Crossroads in southeastern Kentucky, Confederates under George B. Crittenden attacked the vanguard of Thomas's force. The Federals held, repulsing the rebel attacks and killing Confederate Brigadier General Felix Zollicoffer. The Battle of Mill Springs, as it was called by the victors, forced Crittenden back across the Cumberland River and was one of three major engagements in the Bluegrass State during 1862. While Kentucky was central to Lincoln's strategy in the West, success in the region also required control of the rivers that fed the Mississippi and penetrated the Confederate heartland. And gaining this control demanded cooperation between the Federal Army and Navy. The balance of naval power on the western rivers tilted decidedly toward the Union in mid-January with the completion and commissioning of seven ironclad gunboats, the so-called Pook's Turtles, all of which will prove essential in forthcoming combined Army-Navy operations. The Federal conquest of the rivers that pointed like a dagger into the heart of the South began on the initiative of a still relatively junior general. In late January, Brigadier General Ulysses S. Grant proposed a joint Army-Navy operation against Fort Henry on the Tennessee River. When the plan was approved on February 3rd, troop transports and the new ironclads under Flag Officer Andrew H. Foote headed up the river. 
Fort Henry had been badly placed on low ground on the Tennessee River's east bank. Grant's troops landed nearby on February 5th and advanced toward the rebel fort. When Foote's gunboats opened a bombardment the next day, the Confederates abandoned the fort, which was already being inundated by rising floodwaters anyway. Most of the Confederates escaped and joined the garrison of Fort Donelson, which was 12 miles away to the east on the Cumberland River. Although his orders didn't include a movement against Fort Donelson, Grant decided to launch a strike against the place. He waited until reinforcements arrived and Foote's ironclads left to steam up the Cumberland River. On February 12th, Grant's army marched overland and deployed before the rebel lines. The Union gunboats arrived on the scene two days later and unsuccessfully engaged the fort's cannon. On February 15th, the Confederate garrison assailed Grant's lines, attempting to break through the closing ring of Federal troops. But the operation was badly handled, and the Yankees repulsed the attacks. Fort Donelson was doomed. The next morning, the Confederate commander asked for surrender terms. Grant replied, No terms except the unconditional and immediate surrender can be accepted. I propose to move immediately upon your works. With that, the garrison of some 14,000 Confederates surrendered, and Grant had a new nickname to match his initials, Unconditional Surrender, and Lincoln had a general who would fight. Six days later, in Richmond, Virginia, Jefferson Davis is sworn in as the Confederate States of America's first president. The loss of Forts Henry and Donelson and the impending fall of Nashville, Tennessee, darkened the spirit of the day, but Davis reminded his listeners that despite recent setbacks, quote, We are in arms to renew such sacrifices as our fathers made to the holy cause of constitutional liberty. That same day in Washington, Lincoln waited to see whether the Army of the Potomac would advance as he had ordered nearly a month before when he issued General War Order No. 1. Near the end of January, Lincoln, impatient and frustrated with McClellan's inactivity, had taken the unprecedented step of issuing the order, which directed the Union armies to move forward in a coordinated effort by February 22nd. But despite the President's continuing attempts to put the Army of the Potomac on the offensive, Little Mac will ignore Lincoln's wishes. There would be no forward movement by the Army of the Potomac in February, but for Abraham and Mary Lincoln, no military success could have lessened their personal pain. On February 20th, after suffering for two agonizing weeks, 11-year-old Willie Lincoln, the apple of his father's eye, died of typhoid fever. Also in February, the Lincoln administration decides to regard captured Confederate privateers as prisoners of war after originally threatening to treat them as pirates, the penalty for which would have been hanging. However, rebel privateers won't have a significant impact on the war since their civilian owners quickly discover that the profits to be had aren't worth the risk and the privateers will gradually be replaced by Confederate Navy commerce raiders. 
On February 7th, a joint Union-Army-Navy amphibious operation along the North Carolina coast, led by Flag Officer Lewis Goldsboro and Major General Ambrose Burnside, captures Roanoke Island. With that spot secured, the Federals are able to tighten their blockade of Confederate ports. On February 11th, Secretary of War Edwin Stanton establishes the United States Military Railroad, and President Lincoln issues an executive order effectively appointing Daniel McCallum as superintendent. Beginning with seven miles of line in northern Virginia, McCallum, a former official with the Erie and New York Railroad, will eventually control over 2,100 miles of track. By capably using southern rail lines captured during the course of the war, the United States Military Railroad will make a major logistical contribution to the Union's ultimate military victory. In February, the Confederate Congress authorizes Jefferson Davis to suspend the writ of habeas corpus in areas that, quote, in his judgment, be in such danger of attack by the enemy as to require the declaration of martial law for their effective defense, end quote. And Davis immediately suspends the writ in Norfolk and Portsmouth, Virginia, and he suspends it in Richmond on March 1st. Even though Richmond isn't in immediate danger of attack, rising crime and violence among its wartime population, which is ballooned with refugees, war workers, black marketeers, and others, has created a volatile mix in the city. Also in February, as the federal government struggles with the vexing problem of financing the war, Abraham Lincoln signs the Legal Tender Act, creating the first successful government-sponsored national paper money system. The notes, popularly called greenbacks, aren't secured by gold or silver and are meant to be a temporary wartime measure. The original bill authorizes the government to issue $150 million in greenbacks, but this will be insufficient and more than $400 million worth will be put into circulation by the end of the war. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Winter began to ease its grip on the South in March 1862, and the war, like nature, underwent renewal. The now-fading winter had been a season of retreat, loss, and stalemate for the Confederates, and in the Mississippi River Valley, in Tennessee, and in Virginia, Federal armies prepared to press their advantage. 
In northwest Arkansas, on March 7th and 8th, a Confederate army led by Earl Van Dorn clashed with Federals commanded by Samuel Curtis. At the Battle of Pea Ridge, or Elkhorn Tavern, Confederate Brigadier General Ben McCulloch was killed, and the Federals won a key victory in the Trans-Mississippi Theater. Hundreds of miles to the west, in the territory of New Mexico, the Confederates suffered twin defeats at Apache Canyon, or Johnson's Ranch, on March 26th, and at Glorietta Pass two days later. Southern hopes of occupying the territory ended in a wretched retreat back to Texas. Meanwhile, back east, as McClellan lays plans to ship the Army of the Potomac to the peninsula in eastern Virginia, after which he will march on Richmond, President Lincoln, on March 8th, relieves Little Mac of his duties as General-in-Chief, leaving him in command of only the Army of the Potomac. This is supposedly so that McClellan can concentrate his full attention on the upcoming campaign. Lincoln and Secretary of War Stanton will now assume the duties of General-in-Chief themselves. On that same day, March 8th, at Hampton Roads, the U.S. Navy suffers the worst day of its 86-year history when the rebel ironclad CSS Virginia attacks the wooden ships of the Union blockading fleet. The next day, though, the Virginia met its match in the just-arrived federal ironclad USS Monitor. On March 9th, history was made with the first battle between two ironclad warships, and the nature of naval combat was changed forever. Along the Mississippi River, Union forces captured New Madrid, Missouri, on March 14th and began operations against Island No. 10 near the Tennessee shore. This fortified post and its 3,500-man garrison will surrender to Federal General John Pope on April 7th. On March 17th, a mass of Army transports and Navy warships begins the monumental task of moving McClellan's Army and its equipment south down Chesapeake Bay for the start of the Peninsula Campaign. In Richmond, on March 18th, Judah P. Benjamin, former Attorney General in Jefferson Davis's Cabinet, whose short stint as Confederate Secretary of War has recently ended, now becomes Secretary of State, the cabinet post in which he will serve until May 1865. As the Army of the Potomac is transported to the peninsula for Little Mac's campaign against Richmond, out in the Shenandoah Valley, Stonewall Jackson puts into motion a plan suggested by Jefferson Davis's military advisor, Robert E. Lee. It was Lee's plan for Jackson to assume the offensive in the valley and in that way tie down Union forces that would otherwise be free to move east and take part in McClellan's campaign to capture Richmond. On March 8th, though, Stonewall suffers a defeat at the First Battle of Kernstown. But Jackson's aggressiveness does prove to be a successful diversion as Union troops slated to join Little Mac are sent to deal with Stonewall instead. So although Kernstown was a tactical defeat for Jackson, it was a strategic success for the Confederacy and helped lower the odds against the rebel army defending Richmond. Kernstown marked the beginning of Jackson's famed Valley Campaign, and over the next several months he will win victory after victory. His troops will march so often and so far that they will become known as Jackson's Foot Cavalry, 
and Stonewall himself will emerge from the campaign as the foremost hero of the Confederacy. In Tennessee, as March turned to April, Ulysses S. Grant had moved his army south to Pittsburgh Landing on the Tennessee River, where it threatened the rail junction of Corinth, Mississippi. By April 1st, Grant had around 40,000 men encamped in the vicinity of the landing near a one-room log church called Shiloh Meeting House. About 20 or so miles to the south at Corinth, Confederate Generals Albert Sidney Johnston and P.G.T. Beauregard had amassed a 40,000-man army to challenge the Yankees threatening the important rail junction. On April 3rd, this rebel army, commanded by Johnston, set out marching north toward the Yankee encampment at Pittsburgh Landing. The resulting Battle of Shiloh started on the morning of Sunday, April 6th, as the Confederates, aided by the unpreparedness of the Federals, swept forward through the Union troops' camps and pressed the Yankees toward the river. But Sidney Johnston fell with a mortal wound, and his army's assaults soon met stiffened Federal resistance. The combat was the fiercest and deadliest up to that point in the war. In the end, the Union lines held and reinforcements arrived on the scene, and Grant counterattacked the next day, April 7th, and drove the rebels from the field. The butcher's bill for Shiloh, which exceeded 23,000 men killed, wounded, or missing, shocked the northern and southern home fronts, but sadly, it was simply a foreshadowing of the bloody major battles to come. Confederate fortunes in the Mississippi River Valley declined further by month's end. On April 24th, a fleet of Union warships under David Farragut passed Forts Jackson and St. Philip below New Orleans, and steamed up the Mississippi toward the Confederacy's largest city. Farragut's warships arrived opposite the city the next day, and since the Confederate commander had fewer than 3,000 troops on hand to defend it, he marched them away and declared New Orleans an open city. News that the Confederacy's largest and most cosmopolitan city has fallen to the Union stuns the people of the South. Memphis Appeal correspondent John R. Thompson will write on May 8th, No event was considered more unlikely during the whole progress of this war than that New Orleans would fall into the hands of the enemy. In Washington, at the start of April, with McClellan's campaign against Richmond beginning and the war in the West seemingly progressing nicely, Secretary of War Stanton, in a surge of optimism, believes the current manpower in the military will be enough to bring the war to a successful conclusion, so he orders all U.S. recruiting offices closed. They will not remain closed for very long. On April 5th, the Army of the Potomac launches the first major operation of the Peninsula Campaign by initiating the Siege of Yorktown. McClellan chooses to besiege the Confederate lines rather than attack them, despite the fact the Federal Army vastly outnumbers the few rebel defenders. The overcautious Little Mac will waste a full month besieging Yorktown, thereby squandering any advantage he had gained by transporting his army to the peninsula and positioning it for a quick strike at Richmond. 
In Richmond, as bad news continues to come in from the west, and with McClellan's huge army just down the road after landing at the tip of the peninsula, the Confederate Congress on April 16th initiates the first general draft in American history. This first of three Confederate conscription acts provides that white men between the age of 18 and 35 might be drafted for three-year terms or until the end of the war, should that come sooner, and it extends to three years the terms of men already in service who had enlisted for shorter periods. April 16, 1862 is also a memorable day in Washington. More than 10 years before, when he was a representative from Illinois in the 30th Congress, Abraham Lincoln had proposed introducing a bill to end slavery in the nation's capital, but could find little support for the measure. But on this day, as president, Lincoln signs the sort of bill he'd envisioned. The only example of compensated emancipation in the United States, it provides for a payment of up to $300 to loyal Unionist slave owners in the District of Columbia for each slave for whom they can prove a claim, who is freed by this act. The law has its flaws, but abolitionists throughout the North are elated by its signing. The Anglo-African Journal declares, If we rejoice and give thanks to the Almighty for this great boon, we rejoice less as black black men than as part and parcel of the American people. We can point to our capital and say to all nations, It is free. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And since we're using this show to take a look back, we thought we'd take this opportunity to re-recommend one of our favorite Civil War books, Battle Cry of Freedom, The Civil War Era by James McPherson. Battle Cry of Freedom was actually part of our inspiration for starting a history podcast that tries to tell the whole entire story of the Civil War. So really, we have no hesitation in re-recommending this excellent book to you all. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations listed at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. As we wrap up this show, we want to remind you about our plans to have a question and answer session during episode number 250, and you can send in your questions for that show, just like quite a few of y'all did this past week. And if you send in a question, you'll be entered into the drawing for that Civil War Atlas. Yep, uh, keep sending in those questions. We think it'd be pretty cool if we spend the entirety of episode 250 just answering your questions. Well, in the here and now, at the close of this show, we'd be remiss if we didn't thank a few of the folks who are helping keep the podcast going by enlisting in the Strawfoot Brigade and providing monthly support, like Dennis, Pamela, Vicki, Catherine, Benjamin, and Dan who all signed up this past week. We also want to thank Dan for his note, which meant a lot to us. And we want to thank Pamela, who not only became a member, but also gave a donation this past week. And with that, we'll say thanks to everyone for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, A History Podcast. Rich and I do hope you'll join us again next time when we'll continue with our look back at 1862. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.